Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing this song for the dreaming of the world. Back at the beginning of July, I was down in Greeley, Colorado at the University of Northern Colorado as part of the annual roving event called the Friends General Conference Gathering. Always a lot of fruitful workers for world healing there. And this year, I had the privilege to sit down with Bill and Jeannie Durland, folks I've known of since back in the 1980s for their leadership at the Center on Law and Pacifism. But really, that's only one of so many venues for their intersection of faith and activism. You'll hear about that and their work in the Middle East and fighting racism and so much more in the course of this hour. Plus, on the northernspiritradio.org website, you'll find some great bonus excerpts that I just couldn't fit into the radio broadcast. So be sure to listen to those as well and post a comment when you visit the website. Also with me, co-hosting today's Spirit in Action interview is Madeline Schaefer. She's covered for me from time to time for Spirit in Action and always adds a lot to an interview. Right now, let's head to a university classroom in Greeley, Colorado, to visit with Bill and Jeannie Durland. Bill and Jeannie, and of course Madeline, I'm so pleased to have you all here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Bill and Jeannie, I was so excited to see that you were going to be part of the Friends General Conference gathering this year. I've never met either of you but I've been influenced by Bill's work, or at least his was the name I knew from back in the 1980s when I first got involved with war tax resistance. So I have to start with a great big thank you for something that was transformational for my life. Well, you're certainly welcome, and we're happy we were able to do that for about 10 years straight. And Jeannie, your name doesn't appear on the documents, but I suspect you had a vital role in the work. I would like to know what you were doing, not in the limelight, so to speak. I realize that Bill has the law degree, but you're the mastermind, right? Well, I don't think I can claim that. He has the law degree, and his role in the National Center on Law and Pacifism was to do legal research and legal representation, not only for war tax resistors, but for people that were involved in other forms of civil disobedience, religiously motivated, spiritually motivated civil disobedience. Because in most cases, such people, if they go to court, are not expecting to manipulate the law in order to get a win. They want to use the courtroom as a forum for witness. And there are very few lawyers who are willing to allow their clients to control the case to that extent. 
as far as my role goes is I was the editor of all the stuff that came out in writing, especially the newsletter that I don't know if you remember, we had a, a little journal that we called Centerpiece. I was primarily responsible for that. It came out bi-monthly for about 10 years. And Mark, when we started it in 78 in Philadelphia, it was moved to Colorado Springs in 80. It had a broad base, but it was primarily war tax resistors, as you and Rex Friend, who's in the audience, remember. But we, we called it poverty, pacifism, and prisons. And the reason for that was that ACLU cases that they couldn't take were dropping through the the holes, uh, so to speak. And so we handled cases that might not get a lot of publicity, but really helped people a lot. And it was the same on prisons and poverty. People who qualified for some governmental programs, but still didn't have enough money and needed need legal services and help. And I think we integrated the legal with the religious and spiritual, so it was, we tried to make it a holistic and not just a legal entity. You know, I want to go through the many concerns, the faith-driven concerns that the two of you have worked on, and then I want to have us expand first on more tax resistance. You, of course, started with the Center on Law and Pacifism. You then spent some time at Pendle Hill, which is a Quaker retreat center outside of Philadelphia. You did terms with the Christian peacemaker teams. I understand, Bill, that you served time, and I don't mean like in prison, but as a representative in the Virginia House of Delegates. And there's so many other items that we could add to that list. He's also served time in jail. Not all lawyers do that. Which, which is a story, if you want a story. <laughs> and we do want those stories. But I want to start with war tax resistance. How did you get connected with this? Was it part of being a good Catholic growing up? Yeah, I was a good Catholic. I thought, and there was some truth to it, I thought that being a Catholic and American was a good balance. Rex and I were both Catholics at the time uh, we were doing war tax resistance together, and he still is. But I saw Quakerism as a complement to that. I have no hard feelings about Catholicism as a Quaker. I just feel that it was an extension of a kind of theology that I thought was foundational to all Christian theology. So so that's what drew me from that those Catholic roots to expand upon it, I guess. When I first got involved with war tax resistance, I was in Milwaukee, and there was a diverse group of people who were part of that war tax resistance group. Some of them were even a bit religious phobic, in my opinion. I think you must have run into that in your work. I mean, you're trying to put faith and war tax resistance, this witness about time and money and where it goes, military or not. You're concentrating on the intersection of faith and this type of action and witness. Were there people who said, why don't you just keep this religious stuff out of the mix? Yeah, we we ran into that because we did travel around the country and do a lot of workshops. And our workshops, we tried to not just concentrate technically on war, ta on war tax resistance, but on nonviolent action in general. It often, I will say, came down to burnout issues for people that have been in the peace movement for a long time. Our message our ex from our own experience about that was that you can't sustain a life of resistance outside the mainstream 
without a deep spiritual well to draw from. If you're just doing it for political reasons, you're going to burn out. I mean, that's my opinion, and that has been my experience. So we tried to convey that reality to people without plugging some form of religion. Yeah, I, we had a religious orientation, unlike War Resisters League and some of the other groups that were around, but we didn't limit ourselves to that. We limited ourselves to the people who have a deeply moral or spiritual attribute to that. So it that didn't run into so much of a problem. One of the problems was what was called effectiveness or does it work, sort of a pragmatic approach. And that would transcend whether they were religious or secular. And that was, if it doesn't work, don't do it. And we had people we ministered to who said that conscientious objection, civil disobedience is counterproductive, it's wasteful, even war tax resistance, if you hold all the money back, then you are more effective, but you're holding money back from good things that you want to do. If you do it uh, the way some other people do and pay what they feel they need to pay to government, but hold back a percentage, then we were told, well, that percentage would just be figured out in the same way. So you may be witnessing, but you weren't effective. Our answer to that was uh, probably a spiritual answer. And that is we do, we feel what is significant and let the effectiveness or whether it works comes as an end and not a beginning in your kind of philosophical values. And that creates a feeling of a spirit that is, spirits usually are not identified by concrete borders. And that's the kind of spirit we had at the Center Law and Pacifism. And we had some cases that were effective, but the idea was we took our cases for people and we let people creatively work out their cases with our legal advice for them to accept or reject. I heard from some attorneys that I was violating then legal ethics because legal ethics say that you should never, knowing that the case has precedent against it and it's uh, it's not going to be a win that you shouldn't go to court. Well, Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement said, well, I've already decided separate but equal is constitutional in the 1800s. We, we, we just don't go to court. But they did, and they lost, and we went, and we went for those reasons. In the course of your work, did you have any particularly stunning victories or advances? I know in the years that you were working with the Center on Law and Pacifism that the law about what was called frivolous filing was passed and invoked. And I think it increased the amount of fear. Things like, okay, I'm trying to witness about $10 or more taxes not paid, but now they're going to slap me with a $500 or even a $5,000 penalty. Well, I think it did have an effect on the movement. But to jump several decades forward, there's been a brand new win in that area. Right here in our yearly meeting, a member of Intermountain Yearly Meeting has been refusing her taxes and was slapped with a $5,000 fine. And Bill's going to have to explain the process, but she actually won her case and they gave her back her money. She won that at what level? At the tax court level, was it? Yeah. The details are not as important in this case because they were transitional. They weren't a final legal precedent as as I see it. What it turned out to be, and you find this quite often, and that's why there are some some wins when they just don't collect and leave you alone, it's because they make a political decision. 
And it's not worth their money to go after this money when they recognize, as we do, there are a lot of corporations that are not paying any of their taxes. So why are they wasting time actually trying to frustrate us, which they did with this frivolous penalty, came in when we were overseas in Israel and Palestine in 83, and it was Reagan, and it was $500. Now it's $5,000. But if you persist on a witness, you, you don't know what's going to happen. We have had not big successes, but we've had plenty we could tell you about. And it also didn't answer your question how we got started. So we'll cover that somewhere along the line because it's a good Quakerly story. That was actually going to be my question is if we could go back, maybe just how you got started in activism, why you decided that this was something that you wanted to dedicate your life to. So both how you came to the realization that you needed to dedicate your life to not only resistance, but justice, and then also how you both met, because I'm sure it was a passion for both of you, and then you kind of joined forces. I'll get the kind of dicey part over with first <laughs> and say that we met at a time when both of us were married to other people and our marriages were in trouble anyway. You're on the radio. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but um, I was divorced and had gone through that because my first husband had was a physician and an investor and he was very wealthy and the wealthier we got the more I realized that the wealth owned us and it, it you know and it made it drew, drove a huge wedge between us and it just you know as far as I'm concerned being wealthy ruined the marriage and took away any commonality we had so anyway we were divorced and I was trying to redirect my life I really didn't know what I wanted to do so I went back to school. We were living in Indiana at the time. I went to the Indiana-Purdue University campus in Fort Wayne and uh, discovered that there was a new professor there who was heading up what they called the Center for the Study of the Person and was teaching peace studies and women's studies and things like that. Wow, you know, this is 70, what was it, 74? Yeah. And uh, so it was early on for that kind of thing. My professor was Dr. Bill Duraland, and one thing led to another, and we did connect eventually as pacifists, as religious pacifists. That was the base of how we got together and then figuring out together what, what to do with that, what that meant for our lifestyle and our activities. I, I knew there was something really wrong with my lifestyle. I couldn't figure it out on my own, frankly. I don't know, maybe I'm just stupid, but... It was this study of religious pacifism that brought it all into focus for me. I realized where, what the evil is for me about extreme wealth, not even extreme wealth, I mean just being extremely privileged in terms of having a lot of money, being able to do whatever you want to do, hire somebody to clean your house, that kind of thing, you know, I just, you know, it made it all clear what was wrong with that lifestyle. The course was named uh, Jesus, Gandhi, and King with the subtitle, but we started with Tolstoy, where my experience started, and also had a bit of Dorothy Day in there. The way it happened to me was quick and very accidental. I had read uh, Gandhi and King and other activists, pacifists, and I supported them, but I wasn't one of them. I was in Northern Virginia, and I had just got out of the legislature. I went to the Serendipity Bookstore at Christmas because I looked under the Christmas tree and here was this empty spot. 
all it needed was a few dollars to fill it up and make me feel like it was symmetrical, I guess. <laughs> and so, so before dinner, just before Christmas, uh, I went down to the Serendipity Bookstore, and they had this vertical rack of all red books. Well, I was still, I was a liberal in civil rights, but I was not a liberal in war making. I was very patriotic and still supported the just war and those kind of things. And here this red, red was enough to set me off. And then the first book I picked up was the excerpts for Mao Zedong. Well, I put that right down at that point. I wasn't interested. The second one was on Leo Tolstoy. I picked that up because it was a long movie from Hollywood that, or a long book, I should say, that it's hard to get to the end of and a, a movie in Hollywood that didn't do it justice. And when I picked it up, it was put together with strings, so to speak, so that the pages opened up. And when the pages opened up, it said, of old it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, resist not the evildoer, turn the other cheek, walk the extra mile. And I wondered why I hadn't heard this in any church, much less Catholic church. And that almost, just like that, said, this is what Jesus is saying, and this affects my, my legal career, my political career, my religious understanding. And from that point on, that's what did it. And I knew that I had to be pacifist, activist, Christian, and communitarian. So what kind of lifestyle change did that then force? Well, it meant divestment from having, I mean, we wanted to be Wartex resistors, and we didn't want to have... We wanted to try to live at or below the taxable level because obviously that's the best way you could do it. I mean, it's the easiest way. And for also because we recognize that we all have too much in this country and it's a theft from the poor to have more than you need. We just basically gave away everything that was extra. And, and we moved to Philadelphia because we had been in contact with, Bill was working on his PhD at that time and on religious pacifist community. And we had been in contact with a, with a black Baptist minister in Philadelphia who was trying to set up a, a community center in West Philly. So we went and worked with him for a summer. And then we got more involved with, we got involved with the Movement for a New Society because we were living right in that neighborhood. We went to the Movement for a New Society and I had a nice talk with George Lakey here. I haven't seen him since I don't know when. They had a religious part of that called the um, Church, Mouse, Church Collective. Mouse Collective. And I went to the Church Mouse Collective, and there were several people there, one of whom was a Quaker woman named Sandra Boston. That's where I first heard about war tax resistance. So this is 1978. Of course, I heard about it in 1970, I should say, and by 74, I was doing it haphazardly, but I wasn't doing it for anyone else. That's probably the distinction I would make. And Sandra said, we used to have an attorney here in Philadelphia, and we haven't for several years, and that, is, that isn't all of it, but that's something we need, someone who can interpret, decode this stuff for us. So it was Sandra Boston, a Quaker, who put this in me, and you might call, I wasn't a Quaker then, you might call it was a leading, uh, but it wasn't a leading, and it wasn't a calling, it was sort of a from a Catholic perspective, it was sort of, I have the expertise, and this is a duty, and this is something that should be done, and apparently I'm the only one right now who can do it, and therefore I've got to do it. I tell you, tax law is not 
interesting. Um, the motivation was you and you that I could help people who couldn't decipher this thing and I would have to. And that's how the, the Center on Law and Pacifism started with Quakers and Catholics basically in the spring of 1978 with a case of a person named Bob Anthony who was a very weighty Quaker in Philadelphia. And I just want to thank both of you for being part of Movement for a New Society because I live in West Philly and I, I'm part of the community that's kind of kept, the activist community that's stayed alive through mm. until now. So that's I terrific. had no idea. I'm glad to hear about yeah, that. Yeah, that's so I'd cool. I'd like to hear more about what they're doing now. Yeah, well, Movement for a New Society doesn't exist, but there are still mm. young activists in that area and Quakers, including myself. So what did your family think about all of this and your friends? <laughs> This thought is, we went crazy. <laughs> well, yeah, weird was the word. But this is a Tolstoy story. If any of you know the Tolstoy family, Tolstoy becomes a radical Christian pacifist and gets the Orthodox Church on his neck, but also he gives up all his money and copyrights at this point. His wife is a wonderful person in love with him, but she doesn't understand, and she never did understand what he was doing. And then he doesn't sufficiently understand her problem, and they got 13 kids by this time. <laughs> so if you saw the movie, uh, The Last Station, and I wrote a play on it, it's, it's the family thing. It's not only the conversion and now I'm holy and that's good, it's how it affects the rest of the family. My family was affected by this. My first wife, whom we're both friends with now, and is a wonderful person, but she, her calling was to Pentecostalism and to conservative Christianity. Unfortunately, we both got religion and seriously, and we went in opposite directions. So we had a spiritual breakup, and very much like the Tolstoy thing, although none of us died <laughs> or were affected in that way. So it does have an effect, and it needs to be worked out, and perhaps we didn't work it out as well as we should have in, this, in, in the first stages of going through this, and, but neither did Leo Tolstoy. There's a piece I want to backfill in. I hadn't known before, Bill, that you had served in the Virginia House of Delegates. What was that about? I mean, that was back when you were still a peace conservative. Did you leave that for a particular reason, and what were you doing there? Yeah, I think I was always liberal in things like capital punishment, and much of that came from the Catholic Church and poverty and things like that. It was international and patriotism on that basis. Through World War II, I was 11 to 14 something like that. And I remember smiling when the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. I actually smiled as a 14-year-old when I read the headline. So that was quite a trek from that position. What was happening in the Virginia legislature and in Virginia in 1958, when I first got into democratic politics, was segregation was a big issue. Civil rights was just getting started then. So that's what it was. It was very liberal about domestic issues and particularly the right of each person, regardless of their color, to have political representation on a level playing field. We only had about 10 liberals out of 140. And four years later, with what went on in the nation, we were able to turn that around because we were just young Turks. I was one of the youngest, 32, 33. And we were excited and we believed that we were going to win. 
and that's the way it happened. And what about you, Jeannie? What were you doing during those years? Getting married to a rich husband or whatever? We didn't even know each other in the 60s. So that was my other life when I was married to another person and having kids. And so I was just kind of oblivious, I think, a lot of the time. But during the Vietnam War, I really woke up, you know, started to realize how crazy that was and started getting interested in in the movements in opposition to that. And my religious faith was getting, was getting stronger. I was an Episcopalian at that time. And I went through a period when I began to think about the Episcopal priesthood. And this was before there were any women in the Episcopal priesthood. I didn't think that I was called to be a priest, but I was questioning why only men were priests. And I had a conversation with a priest in the church that we went to at that time which just devastated me. I mean, he was, well, I'm going to say, frankly, he was cruel in the way he put me down in that discussion and how ridiculous it was to imagine that a woman could be a priest of the church. And this was the Episcopal Church, not the Catholic Church. And that basically drove me, I didn't, it didn't drive me out of the church immediately, but it drove me out of the church. I mean, my heart wasn't there anymore. So I would say that when I became a Quaker, it was pacifism, but also the non-hierarchy in Quakerism that was what really drew me. So I'm curious about right now, actually, like where where are you guys putting your passions? What are you feeling fired up about in terms of social justice and activism? Well, after the um, Center on Law and Pacifism was laid down, we went through a period where we were raising our youngest son, and he was in high school, and we were also caring for my elderly mother and aunt. It was after that that we were drawn to Christian peacemaker teams. And at first, we went to Palestine in 1983 in the fall on a sabbatical. Bill was taking a sabbatical from the Center on Law and Pacifism, and he, he had always wanted to go to the Holy Land. And I had been there before because my ex-husband was Palestinian-American. So we went to a place called Tantur where we could study and reflect and see the places we wanted to see and so forth. We lived there for close to half a year. And Bill's attitude, I think, when we went over there was to be very neutral and very understanding of both sides' issues. And after just living there and observing what the occupation was doing, and this is in 1983 when things were a lot better than they are now, we became very passionate about the occupation. We didn't go back until 2001, but all that time we were looking for a way to go back, not as tourists, but as to be in some way helpful about the Palestinian dilemma. And so that was what led us to, when we heard about Christian peacemaker teams through the Friends Peace teams that he was part of, we got going with that. And that's been the passion ever since, really, even though we're now too old to go back and do that work. <laughs> I want to remind our listeners that you're tuned in to Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web at northernspiritradio.org. O-R-G, like in organic. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and today with me I have co-host Madeline Schaefer, and our guests are Bill and Jeannie Durland. On the NorthernSpiritRadio.org site, you'll find about eight years of programs for listening and download. You'll find links to our guests, bonus excerpts from the programs, and you'll find some of those from today's program, because I'm sure we're going to go over. And there's a place to make our communication two-way by posting comments. 
please do post comments when you listen. You can also make a donation to Norton Spirit Radio on the site, and those donations are so much appreciated. I also want to remind you to support your local community radio station. They are so vital because so much of our media, the news and the music, is controlled by economic and other special interests. We really need alternative community interests being expressed, and your support of local community radio makes that possible. Again, we're with Bill and Jeannie Durland, and they've got a vast and deep array of activism over the 30, 40, no, actually 50 years of work they've been involved in. Right now, I'm going to turn things over to my co-host, Madeline Schaefer, who I'm sure has a wonderful, insightful question to share with Bill and Jeannie. And that insightful question is, well, I want to get back to the, the Palestinian work that you've been doing. I know that there's been a lot of work around divestment in the United States, and I'm curious what aspects of activism you've been picking up and whether that's part of what you're doing now. Yeah, yeah. we um, started in our town, Colorado Springs, we started a little an organization called the Middle East Peace Project. We had a kind of an ad hoc organization called the Center on Law and Human Rights, and Bill was doing mostly immigration law through that for people that were being deported, you know, workers and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But after we went on the Gaza Freedom March in 2910, over that Christmas and New Year's, to mark the first anniversary of the Operation Cast Lead in Gaza, that turned out to be kind of a, well, it wasn't a flop by any stretch of the imagination, but there were 1,400 internationals in Cairo, and then almost, I think, 90 people were allowed to get into Gaza. Mm -hmm. So... We came home with an extra $500 that had been donated for us to bring into the AFSC project for youth in Gaza so that they could get a new generator. So when we came home, we still had that money and we still wanted to get a new generator for the AFSC project in Gaza. So we got together with some of our cohorts and under the auspices of the Pikes Peak Justice and Peace Commission, which is an organization that has existed in Colorado Springs for 30 years, under their auspices and their tax exemption, we formed the Middle East Peace Project and we do advocacy, education, and humanitarian aid. And so our first humanitarian aid project was to make sure that AFSC overseas got this $500 and that they did in fact get a generator for the AFSC Youth Project in Gaza. Since then, the humanitarian aid part of what we do is to find a volunteer who wants to go to Palestine to learn, and, and we, we help them go in the summertime to a project that's run by the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions. It's an Israeli peace group that rebuilds Palestinian homes that have been destroyed for political reasons. Every summer they have a work camp for internationals to come there and work together to rebuild a Palestinian home. And apparently the people that go, it's just a life-changing experience. And they and they do, they manage to rebuild a, a wonderful house in, in two weeks. And then about three months later, the IDF comes in and destroys the house that they rebuilt. But they keep doing it because it's such a powerful witness. And anyway, we help and we find a person that wants to go and then we help them raise the money that they need to take the trip and help to pay for the building supplies. We also do films every month for educational purposes and we do be, and then we get into the BDS. We try to educate the community about BDS and we do street actions. And Bill can tell you more about that probably. 
um, your question about what have we been doing lately is trying to retire. And what I've been doing, I've been writing books and plays. And plays are fun. Uh, we have a reader's theater from these plays where you don't have to memorize the parts, but you can read the parts and animate them and get your soul into them. And I've done them on, on this Tolstoy thing we were talking about on families and pacifism and one on Lucretia Mott and Dorothy Day and how they complement each other as women activists. Uh, another one was called The Ghosts of America Past last year, where we took Rush Limbaugh back, like Scrooge-like trip, back to the beginnings <laughs> and trappings of American values at the very beginning. Uh, Martin Luther King said, all we ask of America is to be true to what you wrote on paper. That makes me cry when I think of that. It's not asking a lot, but it's not being done. And so we took Rush back to see what wasn't being done. And it, it, was, it was a huge hit, it seemed, with everybody. And the last one is sort of a, the same kind of theme. It's called, By Their Fruits You Shall Know Them, A Conversation with Jesus and His Friends. And we go back and we actually bring in the early Christian martyrs and Constantine, Augustine, Athanasius, Thomas Becket, Joan of Arc, right up to slave woman and Franz Jagerstadter, the Catholic martyr in 2002. And people really enjoy, and I enjoy it because I don't have to footnote them. <laughs> Do they have to be truthful? Yeah, they're truthful, but we try to, I mean, oh. he try, I can't say, because Bill does the writing, but he gets it. He has a knack for bringing in humor and yet retaining the serious message. And so they've been really well received, even in Colorado Springs. Yeah. What I do is I research, a lot of it's free flow, but I make sure that I don't put words in the mouth of these characters and fictionalize it. I, you have to connect, since it is fiction in a way, with a nonfiction base. You have to connect those things. But we try to take what Rush said himself and put it into there, what Lucretia Mott actually said. So we keep a pretty strict control on that, but uh, some of the humor can come out as you connect these things, and some of the seriousness as well. One thing that it seems like you've really dedicated yourselves to working cross-denominational and interfaith, I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about whether that was intentional or whether that was something that you just did naturally because you had come from other faith traditions or what your what your thoughts are about the limitations of a Quaker community and the limitations of working interfaith, if there are any. I would say that in terms of being interdenominational, for us it's that we believe that what the original Quaker movement was about, George Fox and the original Quakers, and it's in their writings that they were seeking to uncover original Christianity. They were trying to strip away the trappings of the established churches so they could recapture that community around Jesus in the beginning. And that's what, what we believe in. You know, we think that Jesus and his message and the nature of the community that's called Christian has been distorted over the generations. And so there's lots of people in lots of churches who are looking for that original message. And that that's a common ground for all of us. And then as far as going interfaith, you know, that's been really strengthened for us by our work in the Middle East because we've discovered and worked with the very viable 
Israeli peace movement that people never hear about in this country. You know, there is just a wonderful number of organizations in Israel that cross the Green Line all the time and work in the territories and do terrific work with Palestinian peace activists, and most of them are either Jews or Muslims. So, you know, when we go there to work, we work at their behest. We don't come as Americans saying, well, we know what you need and we're going to do it for you. CPT doesn't work that way. We go to be of service to those peace movements as internationals, because internationals can be a protective presence, but we, we have to take our marching orders from the peace movement people there, the Palestinians and the Israelis, to tell us what they need. You mentioned CPT, Christian Peacemaker Teams, and I imagine that many of our listeners didn't recognize the initials CPT right away, and they may not know what that organization is or does. How did you get involved with Christian Peacemaker Teams, and what was your involvement? Back in the late 90s, Bill was on the board of the Friends Peace Teams, and there's a relationship between the CPT and the, and the Friends Peace Team. But that was when we first heard about Christian Peacemaker Teams planting a team in Hebron in the West Bank. The organization was founded by the three so-called historic peace churches, the Mennonites, the Brethren, and the Quakers. As I said before, we had been looking for a way to return to Palestine, but to be useful in terms of our understanding of radical activism. It just seemed perfect. And at the time that we were looking into it, CPT was calling for a special, this was at the, at the height of the second intifada. Things were going downhill fast. CPT was asking for a special delegation of people who were experienced in doing CD and even getting arrested and stuff like that to go to really scope out what was happening. You know, they already had a team of peacemakers working in the Hebron area, but they wanted a more experienced team, a, a team that was more experienced with the dangerous aspects of peace activism to go there and help out that summer because it was so tough. That was the summer of, of 2001. We went on that delegation, and we did, in fact, uh, the second day we were there, we were asked to come to Beit Jala, which was under mortar fire from an Israeli settlement every night, and be human shields to, to sleep in the homes of Palestinians that were being fired on. Their hope was they put it on the local TV that there's Americans and internationals in this, you know, in this neighborhood in Beit Jala quit firing on the neighborhood. Of course, it didn't do any good because they fired on us for five hours. And it was like, you know, I mean, we knew we were in a war zone. It woke us up to the, to the fact that this is a war zone and these people are trying to live a normal life. And yet the balance is so far off. I mean, they're, they're basically unarmed except illegally and, they, and they're up against a huge military power. Plus the settlers who are allowed to be armed as civilians and do whatever they want primarily. So anyway, we that was our introduction, was to be part of that delegation. And then we went into their boot camp or training period, which is very intense. It takes a month of, you know, just living there and being trained all day long in nonviolent activism, their various aspects of it. The last thing I'll say is that it's set up like a, they use some military language because the vision is, why not unarmed people armed with faith and love 
Why don't they take the same risks that military do and apply the same dedication without to being gun. without being armed, to be to going into a lethal situation and being peacemakers instead, you know, and intervening, interfering with the injustice and the oppression that's going on. That's the mission of Christian peacemaker teams. And they have a team in based in Hebron and the South Hebron Hills. We can tell you more about that. A team in Kurdistan, a team in Colombia, and a team in Northern Canada working on uh, indigenous people's problems with the lumbering companies. One of the things they do is accompany people, just be with them in an occupied, military-occupied place. And a couple of short stories I could tell you are about standing in line trying to get through checkpoints that are within the West Bank that is supposedly the Palestinian Authority. We would always go through with the Palestinians because as Americans, we could go through with the Israelis in a very short line. And to take the long line, you stand in 90 degree heat for a long period of time. And it takes a long time to get through. And in front of us at the Candelaria, I think it was, Calandia (laughs) checkpoint, uh, outside of Ramallah going back to Jerusalem, was a mother and her young baby. And the baby looked sick to begin with, and the heat was really exhausting on him. Having been in the military, I talked to Israeli military and had a good conversation with people on the other side. And I called the soldiers over and they eventually, it took about 15 minutes to go through their hierarchy, but they let the mother and child go through. But you see, it's it's only by sufferance. It's not a right that the mother can go through. And that's the kind of thing we can do when we're there, facts on the ground going on. The other thing, when we were in Hebron, and they've eliminated the marketplace there now, Jeannie, isn't that true? Well, that particular marketplace in the old city, we, we all, our, our team lives in the old city of Hebron, which yeah. has been decimated by settlers. And you could set up your fruit stand, this individual did, but there is an existing curfew so that whenever the Israelis come through and and say they lift the curfew, they can lift it and they close it. And when they close it, they close it just like that immediately. This man apparently was in the exchange of money and selling fruit and conversation and income to tanks. And they just took advantage of the fact that he didn't act fast enough. He was still two minutes into the curfews and hadn't concluded his transition and they broke his leg and they uh, destroyed his fruit stand and he had to go to the hospital which was the worst part of it. But by the time I was able to accompany him because they took him away and he brought back and I waited for him and several of us were there, that his home was only 200 yards or feet. I mean, I could see his extended family and his kids. There was no way he could get home because they were not gonna let him home with a broken leg after all of that harassment. And so I went up to the soldiers, and this time the the private just ignored me, didn't act like I was there. I finally got him to recognize me, and he says, I can't make a decision. You have to talk to my sergeant who was sitting in a Jeep. And the sergeant tried to ignore me too, but I just hang around, you know, until they finally uh, pay attention to me. And after about 15 minutes, I was able to talk. He said there's a a Jewish funeral service or wedding, I don't remember. No, it was a funeral procession was going yeah, to come, come through, there. through there. And I said, well, how long? He said, well, in about 20 minutes. I said, well, there is this family. It'll take two minutes. He says, no, no, we can't do that. Well, after a lot of 
hassling, they did it, and he got back with his family. And what does he do? Broken leg hospital and harassed like this. He invites us over to his home for breakfast. And of course, we had about 18 kinds of fruit because he's a fruit <laughs> salesman. I love fruit. And we, we met his whole extended family, but he was so grateful. And it's those kind of things CPT does while trying to change the big things. We do the little stories as well. Another one of the stray threads I'd like to capture here. Where can we get a hold of your plays? Are they available? Are they online? Can we send you money so you can send them to us? How could we do that? The four plays are now in a Docamart 8x11 booklet. And they cost, uh, and there's no copyright or anything, they cost, Docamart charges me, I think it's $10, is it? To, whatever it is, I just sell them at cost. If you could afford that, if not, I'll be happy to give it to but you. We also have electronic copies, yeah. so they can be emailed. Our email is Durland, W-E, that's D-U-R-L-A-N-D-W-E, at gmail.com. And our phone number is 719-635-8686 in Colorado Springs, Colorado. As war tax resistors, aren't you afraid that the IRS is going to hear your phone number and use it to hassle you about unpaid taxes? Well, they don't owe any taxes. They are um, below the taxable level, so they, there's nothing to get from yeah, us. But this gets us back to when we were above the taxable level, and on a couple of occasions they came in. When they open up your tax, the law says if you forgot something or you want to change something, it opens that up as well. And by the time this guy got through, they owed us $850. No, we're not afraid. Uh, the IRS is something government should have and do, and we do what we do with the IRS, and that is to live below the taxable level. You know, I imagine that having spent some time under real imminent danger with bombs bursting in air like when you were in Palestine, that it kind of reduces the relative threat you feel from an IRS agent in a pinstripe suit. I don't think we were ever afraid because we had some element of trust before 2001 of the U.S. government that they would try to be fair under their own rules as fair as it could be. And that may not have been true, but that's the way we felt at the time. But we also had experiences that indicated that they weren't very efficient and that that often helped people that were doing war tax resistance slip through the cracks. We had one instance when we were, an agent came to our door one day and said, where is your bank account? Now we had paid part of our tax because we, we, we just withhold the military portion and we paid the part of our tax that we paid with a check. So all they had to do was look at the check to figure out where our bank account was. <laughs> and so we said to this guy, well, you know, that's for us to know and you to find out. They started putting liens on all the banks in town, and they never found our bank because we were in the smallest bank. But that's 30 years ago. Yeah, that's that, 30 it? years ago. But what I'm saying is those kinds of things, we used to have these conferences. We'd get together around the country, and we'd have a big war tax resistance workshop. And part of the program would be for people to tell their stories like that, because all those stories really help to encourage the other people and help them not to feel afraid. And here's another story. There were instances where IRS agents just put that war tax resistance problem in their work file box. File 13. And well, that's what they called it, file 13, but it just kept it at the bottom so they never got to it. And so 
you never know what's going to happen if you if you just follow your witness and your beliefs and your values and let the chips fall the same way and don't worry about something working before it happens or whether it's effective before it happens. Just do what's right and find out what's happened. Sometimes it's not going to be very good and other times it's going to be, but at least you've been true to your own spirit. You know, Bill, I understand that you're somewhere around 80 years old. But I have to say that you don't look very worn or at all broken by the heavy weight of the witness you've borne for years. Why is that? 82.4. <laughs> and I think one of, the, one of the things for my, I've had a heart attack and I take some, some pills, but I, I've got a lot of aches and pains you can't see. But I think because I was an athlete, and I was a jock, I wanted to be a sports writer on the radio like you, <laughs> until I was in an automobile accident in college. And I think that being on the track and field team uh, really was great, a great athletic experience that helps my health today. But the accident put me on the books and I'm still reading and writing them, I guess. <laughs> we have a dog that insists that we walk her as often as possible, and all the trails in Colorado Springs are uphill and downhill, so that's good for us. That's how we keep moving. And all this excellent physical health, it's not just due to the blessings that come from a faithful spirit being returned to you. It's just track and field and dog that keeps you healthy? Well, I can't, I don't know. I'll have to talk to my cardiologist, Dr. David Greenberg, who's great about everything except Israeli-Palestine. <laughs> and he thinks I'm in good shape. And he, um, But I think if you don't, I think what can really upset you, we've seen people in the peace movement, Mark, and we know them today and some of them locally that are so stressed out because they accept the idea of not being effective, but it is really sad for them to give their whole lives, I mean, literally their whole lives, one of the couple, they don't have a car, they've uh, given up their uh, all kinds of advantages, they, they look older than they are, they're wonderful spirit-led people, but they are really burned out 10 times over because it takes its toll, unless with Bob Smith, who looks just great, can see the humor and get through the bad stuff and not expect to win and then find out when you do, then you're just, just amazed that it happened. That's the best attitude to have. I think for us it's a matter of knowing. I mean, certainly we're far from perfect and we make a lot of mistakes, as everybody does. But speaking for myself, I know that I've been as faithful as I can be to what I believe in and what I believe is right. And that's all anybody can do. If you can feel that way about what you're doing and about your life, then, then you know, you can stay happy, basically. So you're saying it boils down to don't worry, be happy? Right. Golly, there should be a song about that or something. Well, I was just going to say your instructions for this radio program was just to relax. And some, some things we do, you can get a little uptight because you want to make sure that you cover everything and so you take notes before you came in. We didn't do that because you said just relax and you're a very relaxing person to be with and it probably went better than if we'd done it the other way. So that keeps us healthy. Mark, you're keeping us healthy. <laughs> well, I'm glad to help out. Well, Bill and Jeannie, 
the dynamic Durland duo. It's been great to have you here spending this time together at the Friends General Conference gathering held this year at Northern Colorado University in Greeley. I'm so impressed with your lives of witness, both the work and the faith dovetailing together. And when I make comments about how young you look, I think that it's because you're holding on to a thread that is energizing you, saving you from the bitterness and the burnout that so many activists encounter. Your work with the Center on Law and Pacifism, as I said, was so important to me when I got involved with war tax resistance. Your time at Pendle Hill, no doubt, influenced so many people. Christian peacemaker teams. I want to sit here all day and listen to you tell stories about your time in Palestine. And just to think of you, Bill Durland, serving in the Virginia House of Delegates, working for racial justice. The list is so long and so inspiring from both of you, Bill and Jeannie. Thank you so much for your long lives of witness, and thank you for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank Thank you, Mark. Mark. We've really enjoyed it. And I want to thank you, Madeline. Madeline Schaefer, to everyone listening, for co-hosting with me today as we've been visiting with Bill and Jeannie. You know, I thank you for your participation today, but also for hosting Spirit in Action in the past, and I'm sure in the future, you do such a great job of seeking out stories of those doing good work in the world through your podcasts with the American Friends Service Committee, AFSE, and other podcasts that you do personally. So thank you also for sharing your generous gifts today. Yeah, thank you, Mark. I really appreciate the chance to speak with Bill and Jeannie. Thank both of you. You're a true inspiration for me. And I look forward to hearing more about what you're doing with Israel-Palestine and how you're connecting with other Quakers who are doing a lot of work around that issue around the country. And you should tune in because some of the work that I'm doing for Northern Spirit Radio is about Movement for New Society. And I'm doing, I'm conducting interviews with people that were a part of that movement, which is just an amazing movement and it's Quaker-related, but incorporates lots of different faiths and And we hope to see you in March because I'm the Colorado representative to the AFSC Corporation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and And I'm an uh, at-large member, so we're both on the corporation. So we'll get together again. Wonderful. Thank you for your questions. They were just wonderful, both of you. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.